This story can be, at times, grim. What happened in Marion changed America in part because of how grim it was. This episode contains descriptions of violence and a long history of American slavery. These things happened, and they continue to inform the present of Marion and the Black Belt. However, this story is not all grim. Not only has change happened on a national level, but on a local one as well. As we will see, Marion did not stop creating stories in 1965. It continues to move forward, ever-changing, like every community. Keep that in mind. It will be important as we go. There is more to any town than a single night, and there is more to find when you discover Marion. If you were here on February 18th, 1965, just a few minutes before 7 p.m. here in Marion, Alabama, you might have seen 26-year-old Jimmy Lee Jackson walking in to the Zion United Methodist Church. He had graduated from Lincoln High School, just as Coretta Scott and Gene Childs did. He is remembered as gentle, a man who worked hard to provide for his daughter, Cordelia. On Sundays, he served as the youngest ever deacon at St. James Baptist Church. He was there that night with his mother, Viola, his grandfather, Cager Lee, and his 16-year-old sister, Emma. Jimmy Lee was not a leader of the movement, not like Albert Turner or James Orange or C.T. Vivian. But his family, like many families in the Black Belt at that time, was part of the movement. Jimmy Lee was persistent in attempting to register to vote, but many were it is his ordinariness, his small-town, hard-working ordinariness, that made what happened to him such a tragedy. Dallas County Sheriff Jim Clark, who just days before had been embarrassed in a confrontation with movement leader C.T. Vivian on television, has come to Marion, along with white men from around the area to foil the planned protest. Some say he has expressed a desire to get revenge on Vivian. Whatever his reasoning, he is here with his trademark nightstick. Vivian is a speaker at the meeting at Zion Methodist, and he quietly leaves as soon as he is done, avoiding Clark and his men. It is following his speech, just as he is leaving from the back of the church, that the marchers begin to line up, on their way to the county jail just down the block that still stands in the square, as a reminder of that night. Falling apart. It's two stories, yeah. Brick building, the windows are almost non-existent now. It's just kind of falling down. There's a rusty fence. What do you think? About 10 feet high, maybe? With barbed yeah. wire at the top. Um, a sign that says, no talking to inmates. It's a very um, worn down, I guess, is the best word for it. The marchers begin their demonstration with full knowledge that whatever violence is about to happen should be met with nonviolence. In a town the size of Marion, 50 people is a crowd. To see that many gathered on one block would be shocking on a normal day. On this night, 50 or more people are gathered on the block as the marchers begin to exit the church two by two. Those 50 people are in police uniforms and helmets, and they are carrying billy clubs. 
The marchers only make it about 50 feet before the Marion chief of police asks them to disperse over a megaphone. The marchers request to pray before they return to the church, and as they begin to kneel, the streetlights go out. Then, the violence begins. The events of that night were terrible. Activists were viciously attacked. Many were injured in a scene not dissimilar to the events of a few weeks later on Bloody Sunday in Selma. Perhaps the biggest difference is the lack of cameras in Marion, largely because the march was held at night, though press were attacked by the mob of police as well. It was carnage, a bloody night in the dark. The violence did not come out of nowhere. Marion is part of a string of counties that cut across Alabama called the Black Belt. There is a place for a larger discussion of what the Black Belt is. It can be seen with a broad view as a strip of counties that make a crescent across the entire southeastern United States, from Texas to Virginia. In this context, in the context of this state and this time period, we are talking about the Alabama Black Belt, confined to the state's borders. Today, the Birmingham Metro is the economic center of the state. That has not always been the case. Birmingham was founded in 1871. Marion was founded 54 years earlier, in 1817. In those days, following the Battle of Horseshoe Bend in 1814, in which future President Andrew Jackson ended the Creek War, many in the northeastern U.S. caught Alabama fever and began to carve out settlements among the winding rivers and dense forests of the state. Michael McElroy, sometimes known as Michael Muckle, caught the fever and settled in what would become Marion in 1817. The little town that grew up around him, Muckles Ridge, was like much of the Black Belt, booming. Rich black soil, which gave the region its name, created by limestone deposits left by an ancient American sea, made the Black Belt counties the place to be for plantation owners. Segmented into vast estates, the Black Belt became home not only to rich landowners, but also to enslaved peoples. A map of the counties with the most densely populated slave populations is nearly identical to a map of the Black Belt today. In these counties, including Perry County, black enslaved people made up a majority of the population. The Moore Webb Holmes Plantation in Marion is open for tours and offers a glimpse of what that plantation life might have been like in those early days of Perry County. By 1822, Muckles Ridge had become the county seat and had renamed itself Marion in honor of Francis Marion, a Revolutionary War general nicknamed the Swamp Fox. Marion became one of the centers of both Alabama culture and profit. Memories of those days are still scattered around the city, namely in the antebellum homes and structures that remain standing. Every first Sunday in December, the Perry County Historical and Preservation Society puts on a historic homes tour that begins at the female seminary building and winds its way across town, celebrating the holidays and visiting many historic structures and homes. Sites you are likely to see include Carlisle Hall, which features an incredible four-story tower, Reverie, which is one of the best-preserved and decorated antebellum homes in the South, a home known as Twin Magnolias, and the Lockett Martin House. When the issue of slavery came to a head, another moment we etch into our national consciousness, a moment we tell ourselves stories about again and again, and the Civil War began, the governor of Alabama came from Marion. Andrew B. Moore was born in South Carolina, but moved to Perry County in 1827 and taught school in Marion for two years before beginning his legal and political career. His house, still known as the Governor's House, is here too. 
And it was here in Marion that an artist teaching at the female seminary, Nicola Marshall, designed the first Confederate flag. Known as the Stars and Bars, it isn't the one you're thinking of when you hear the words Confederate flag. This flag was eventually replaced because it looked too much like the American flag. And he also designed that gray Confederate uniform that stalks the American imagination. When Jimmy Lee Jackson left Zion Methodist that evening, and when the lights went out, the history of enslavement and secession and its fallout would come to a violent boiling point. What happened to Jimmy Lee in the College City, and how Marion got that name, when we come back. St. Wilfrid's is a modest-looking church, but the graveyard behind it holds some of the casualties of America's deadliest war. Confederate soldiers who died at the military hospital on the campus of Howard College are buried here, moved from campus in 1872. Howard grew out of the educational drive of one of the South's most important churches, the Siloam Baptist Church, a building still held together by wooden pegs that has a long history of educational outreach and was the home of the movement that created the Southern Baptist Convention. From the female seminary in Marion, part of a growing Southern push for female education, grew Judson College, a four-year women's school whose campus remains in Marion, with historic buildings and a history all its own. Judson continues to be heavily involved in its community. It was here that the Alabama Baptist newspaper was first published, and here that the founder of Vassar College, a staunch abolitionist, Milo Jewett, cut his teeth as an administrator of higher learning. From the success of Judson grew Howard College. Howard began as the boys' school, and would eventually become the site of a Confederate hospital during the Civil War. Following the destruction of campus at the end of the war, Howard moved to Eastlake. From there, it would eventually move to Homewood, Alabama, and become Samford University. MMI, as it's known around town, has prepared thousands of students for further education, careers, and military service. It's been ranked the best military junior college in America and the 12th best community college in the nation by CNN Money. The Alabama Military Hall of Honor on MMI's campus is located in the former Marion City Hall, another antebellum structure. Alabama's military heroes are remembered and honored here in a space dedicated to remembering those who have served their country. These schools, Lincoln Normal, Judson College, Samford University, Alabama State University, and numerous historic black colleges and universities can trace their ties back to Marion, earning it the name the College City. Marion remains a hub for education in the black belt and in the state. Howard College left Marion after the Civil War, and so did many others. Before the war, Southern money was tied up in land and in people, and after the Civil War, much of that money invested into enslaving black Americans largely disappeared. This is the case across the South, but especially in the Black Belt where so much of this money was concentrated. Like much of the South and the nation, black wealth in general did not grow much after the end of the war. After Reconstruction, the brief period in which black politicians and leaders were elected to local and statewide office, black people in Marion, the Black Belt, the state, and much of the country were not allowed to vote. And it was this injustice, compounded by the wealth that remained in white hands across the South, that led to a march from Zion Methodist. 
It was this sense of order, of a social hierarchy based on race that had existed in the United States since before the Revolutionary War that led to the lights being turned out. It was this that led to a bloody night in February. Jimmy Lee Jackson and his family do not go towards the Perry County Jailhouse. They make the decision to turn the other way, to run behind the church with nearly a hundred of the other marchers. Troopers follow. Importantly, Trooper James Bernard Fowler follows. Cager Lee, Jimmy Lee Jackson's grandfather, is beaten. Jimmy Lee finds his way to a small restaurant called Max Cafe just behind the church. Accounts vary as to what happened inside. Troopers who were there claim that James Fowler was hit in the head with a bottle and that he shot Jimmy Lee Jackson in self-defense. Cager Lee and his grandson, on his deathbed, both said that Jimmy Lee was trying to get his grandfather to the hospital when he was shot. We walked the other way, to the place where Max Cafe once stood. So, is this where the cafe was? See, I, I'm not sure. The sign up front says, then behind the church. Yeah, but I so can't, I don't know what I've never been able to figure out. This is a hot field. This is a, yeah. I can't figure out where that is. Where exactly that would have been, and that's kind of what I wanted to look for. Um, Miss Hope was saying, um. Ooh, is, could that be it? Could that be the memorial, the sign? Yeah, Miss Hope was saying it was some funeral home that had like a plaque at the bottom. Ooh, it's very hot. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. I was gonna say if y'all can like do that again, I can maybe this is not hot. No, this is not Yeah. So, so okay. to sort of give an idea of what's going on right now, the sign seems yep, to have just completely fallen can we now. Just flip it over towards Katie. Oh. Yeah. Let's not move mess with it much more. There's like oh. bricks and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, so the cafe would have cafe would have been right here. Wow. So the memorial has literally just toppled over. Yes. Along with an entire wall, wall of bricks. Yeah. yeah. Do you think they're reconstructing it? Redoing it. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Hmm. And so he was apparently in the cafe. And then whatever happened happened. Reports vary. But he was shot. Uh protecting his mother and grandfather from being beaten. So, okay. Marion looks different than it did that night. It isn't the same place it was in 1965. For one thing, voting rights have prevailed. After Jimmy Lee Jackson's death, Martin Luther King spoke at his funeral. The marchers, the protesters, and the community of Marion came together to sing, as James Orange had before. belt at James Bernard Fowler, at the system, and the history that had created that night. At first, 
The idea was to take Jimmy Lee's body and dump it on the steps of the state capitol. Instead, SNCC and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference decided it was time to march from Selma to Montgomery. There they would be met by Sheriff Jim Clark, just as they had been in Marion weeks earlier, and this time the carnage would be captured by television cameras. That day came to be known as Bloody Sunday. In its wake, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed, and the world changed forever. Marion has in some ways always been a sleepy little town. It has a beautiful natural beach on the banks of the Cahaba River in Perry Lakes Park, a place where birders and nature enthusiasts often gather to marvel at the beauty of the Cahaba and the South. James Bernard Fowler revealed his identity in 2007 to a reporter. He was indicted then by a Perry County grand jury for the death of Jimmy Lee Jackson and was convicted in 2010. He served five months of his sixth month sentence and was released because of health problems. He had not been a state trooper for a long time. In 1966, he shot another black man in Alabaster, Alabama. And in 1968, he left the troopers after attacking his supervisor over a performance review. He then served in Vietnam and continued to work overseas for years, eventually being convicted and sentenced to five years in a Thai prison for heroin charges. He died in 2015, back home in Alabama, and at least by 2007, continued to express his belief that integration was unnatural. All of this history informed the writing of Mary Ward Brown, who wrote about Marion and places very much like Marion in stories regarded by many as some of the finest of the 20th century. It is in these stories, which are bursting with truths about the South and the country in our age, that you can find bits and pieces of Marion. Her writing has touched many people, and it has used all the pain and joy of Marion to do it. She is remembered in the Alabama Women's Hall of Fame, which is located on Judson's campus. It is there that other famous Alabama women are honored. They are remembered as the people who so often changed the world. Mary Ward Brown, Coretta Scott King, Adela Joan Childs, and others who are not honored there, yet like a Jean Childs Young and Mary Elizabeth Phillips. We haven't mentioned yet how Kemp, another famous Marionite who is honored in the Jazz Hall of Fame for his 1920s and 1930s big band hits. Marion holds not just history, but a key to understanding this world. Pain and suffering, yes. Enslavement and violence against African Americans, but also, importantly, a place where the world has changed for the better. The Social a brand new ice cream shop sits on Washington Street in downtown Marion. You can see the corner of the old county jail from their door. They represent a new Marion, a gathering space for every part of the community to come together. This community is beginning to move towards a better future, beginning to move towards hope, towards togetherness, towards something greater, and it is coming from inside this community. A movement forwards, not away from the history of this place, but with it. The first Saturday and Sunday of every month have become gathering times to remember Marion's history and to celebrate its present and to anticipate its future. Most historic attractions are open at this time, inviting those young and old to experience the past. The Marion Welcome Center opens in August of 2018, a place where outsiders 
and community members can come together to begin to build a story of their own about Marion. This is a community like any other. Basketball games and parades come and go. Church bells ring and the world spins ever onward. Things happened here that caused great pain and great suffering. Things happened here and happen here every day that are joys and triumphs. That is perhaps also the story of this country. Terrible things happened here and happen here, and yet we move as Marion has towards something better. Little things, little joys and triumphs happen in little towns from sea to shining sea. We build. We overcome. It is important to speak to those who remember, to ask questions, to inquire about the why of it all. You may discover a story you never expected. A story of a community that has risen against all odds. The story of a community that has seen great divisions and, in many ways, great unity. A story of violence and yet a story of love. What is important about Marion is that its story is always changing, always shifting, depending on who is telling it and on who is listening. It is not etched, not yet, into our national consciousness. It is not preserved like George Washington cutting down the cherry tree. Those moments mean one thing. Marion can mean anything. So go, find a story you can connect with. Go discover Marion. Discover Marion is produced and written by me, Samuel G. Reese. The voices you heard belong to Hannah Woodard, Katie Eves, and Nicole Gardner. Our music is Indian Summer by Lobo Loco, Stormy Blues by Arnie Bang Hussaby, and Every Waking Hour by Robin Gray. You can find their music in the links in this episode's description and on freemusicarchive.org. The recording of We Shall Overcome is from the Smithsonian Folkways Freedom Songs, Selma, Alabama and was recorded in Selma at Jimmy Lee Jackson's Mass. Much of the information for this story came from Jimmy Lee and James, Two Lives, Two Deaths, and The Movement That Changed America by Steve Pfeiffer and Ader Cohen. Special thanks to the University of Alabama Honors College, the David Matthews Center for Civic Life, and Main Street Marion. Visit discovermarion.org for more information about visiting these sites, as well as lodging, amenities, and dining in Marion. And visit the Marion Welcome Center to begin building your Marion story today. Thanks for listening.